are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we're picking up this evening with the final little section on gluttony. And so we're on page 138, number 32, paragraph 32, about midway down the page. And then we'll be moving on to the step on purity of heart. Uh, all beautiful material, so I hope, hope you enjoy it. Number 32, do not be deceived. You will not be delivered from Pharaoh, and you will not see the heavenly Passover unless you continually eat bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And bitter herbs, this is the coercion and pain of fasting, and unleavened bread, this is a mind that is not puffed up. Let, us, let this cleave to your breathing, the word of him who says, but as for me, when the demons trouble me, I will put on sackcloth and humble my soul and humbled my soul with fasting. And my prayer hath cleaved to the bosom of my soul. So John here is quoting and using uh, Psalm number 34, as we see in the, the, uh, in the side of the page there. And... Uh, so what John is communicating to us here is that the struggle with gluttony and the struggle with our appetite for food is something that endures throughout the course of our life. And so we have to be vigilant and uh, sort of as they were for the Passover meal itself. And he's using this imagery, you know, they would, you know, have their loins girded and they would, you know, eat standing and they eat bitter herbs and, and, uh, and unleavened bread and to prepare themselves for the exodus. Uh, but nonetheless, they have to be prepared for the, the harshness of it. And, uh, and which he describes here of, of fasting and of humility. And uh, this is the only path that allows us to, as it were, enter into that promised land of freedom from, from this particular passion that, uh, it's only by the grace of God, of abandoning ourselves to him, of clinging to him through prayer, fasting, and through this constant vigilance that we're able to overcome it. And um, I think this is why I, I think I've pressed so hard for us to uh, take a look again at the practice of fasting, and in particular, the ways that the fathers embraced it, uh, because it is so tied to the struggle with the, the first of, of the passions. And if it is lacking in our spiritual life and there's no constancy in that practice, we are in a sense going to be hobbling ourselves and making ourselves uh, more vulnerable. And in uh, some of the ways he'll talk about here, especially as he wraps up uh, this step as to why it is so challenging. He goes on in 33 to say, state, fasting is the coercion of nature and the cutting out of everything that delights the palate, the excision of lust, the uprooting of bad thoughts, the deliverance from incontinence of dream and dreams, purity of prayer, the light of the soul, the guardian of the mind, deliverance from blindness, the door of compunction, humble sighing, glad contrition, the cessation of chatter, a cause of stillness, a guard of obedience, lightning of sleep, health of body, agent of dispassion, 
remission of sins, the gate of paradise and its delight. And so this little list here of the fruits of fasting should be enough, I think, to uh, make us perk up and at least be willing to uh, experiment with the practice of fasting, to enter into it again in such a way that it becomes a regular part of our life, both fasting and abstaining from certain foods. And, uh, and the list that he gives of the, the things that are, are the fruits uh, of this are extraordinary. Um, an uprooting of, of bad thoughts, an excision of lust, uh, even altering to the point of altering our dreams, uh, a lightening of uh, the soul, so giving light to the soul, guiding us in the spiritual life, a guarding of the mind. So this humbling of the body that takes place through fasting has uh, not only the impact of deepening our, our prayer, but in enabling us to engage in the spiritual warfare uh, and to engage in it in such a way that we can move with a swiftness, uh, the swiftness of an, of an athlete, if you will. Uh, or, and um, so we want to unburden ourselves from the things that weigh us down, and, but also the things that would make our minds and our hearts sluggish that so much of the spiritual battle, as we've talked about, is psychological, that has to do with the thoughts as well as the appetites. And so to take hold of fasting in a deep way is to, to strengthen us in all of these areas. And um, even in things like lightening of sleep, uh, health of body, that often we don't think of fasting in that way, except again in the, in the secular forum, which sees it as something that brings health to the body. But uh, I think when we think, uh, consider it in a spiritual way, we all of a sudden become uh, concerned about it weakening us too much, uh, rather than being something that adds to a kind of health of body, uh, an experience of lightness uh, in, in general, and uh, a sharpening of our, our thoughts. Whereas those who practice it, this intermittent fasting, I've watched some of the videos and they talk about some of the exact things here that John outlines in this paragraph. 34, let us ask this foe, or rather the supreme chief of our misfortunes, this door of passions, this fall of Adam, this ruin of Esau, this destruction of the Israelites, this laying naked with Noah's shame, of Noah's shame, this betrayer of Gomorrah, this reproach of Lot, this perdition of sons of Eli, this guide to impurity. Let us ask her, from whom is she born? Who are her offspring? Who crushes her? And who finally destroys her? I love the way that John sets up these steps, a definition illustrative stories, and then this uh, kind of scrutinizing uh, of the passion itself, pressing it to tell us uh, its origins, but also uh, its sons and daughters. Tell us, tyrant of all mortals, you who have brought all with the gold of greed, how did you get access to us? And what do you usually produce after your coming? And what is the manner of your departure from us? So to examine you know, our hearts and to ask uh, ourselves, you know, what is the source of this for us? And the effect, of us, effect upon us over the course of time. And, uh, and then also what does it produce uh, that also draws us down even further into the other passions? And gluttony, annoyed by these insults, raving with fury against us and foaming, replies, why are you, who are my underlings, overwhelming me with reproaches? Why are you trying to escape from me? I am bound to you by nature. And so there's kind of arrogance in the uh, response of, of gluttony in and of itself. Uh, a kind of confidence that arises over the fact that it is rooted in our very nature, 
that our need for food uh, to sustain us then also makes it a door uh, for a potential passion that we can go to excess in our eating and then so open us up to the effects of that excess in our life. And so with almost a kind of confidence, he rails back at the questioner, you know, why do you bother me and even bother to ask these questions when I'm bound forever to you while you're in this world? I am uh, the door for me is the nature of foods. So as we've described that uh, food is something that we take uh, not only to sustain us, but is also tied to a kind of pleasure for us, taste, uh, that there's a joy that we take in the act of eating itself that draws us to it. Plus, uh, on an emotional level, as we've talked about, it can even become uh, a source of consolation for us. When we feel empty on an emotional level, we can seek to fill ourselves physically. And uh, it gives us that momentary kind of relief uh, from that feeling. And, uh, and it might not last long, but food is always available to us. And so we can go back to it over and over again. The cause of my insatiability is habit which is an interesting thing. You know, when we begin to establish the habit of virtue and change the habit of our mind and the way that we think about things in regards to food, then uh, we, we begin to see how powerful the opposite is. The insatiability arises out of habit as well. We will tell ourselves in our minds that we need this or that it will make us happy for a period of time, uh, that it'll make us healthy, whatever the reasoning behind it might be, that uh, it creates this kind of habit of thought. And once that habit is deeply rooted, it's hard to break. And then when we add to that the habit of practice itself, uh, eating in overabundance, it becomes very difficult to break as, as any habit that we have, not simply tied to food. I think that, that we know, and we've talked about this before, even like picking up the uh, cell phone is a kind of uh, uh, habit for us as well. And we something there is satisfied for us. And once that habit is deeply rooted, it is very hard uh, to break it. And so with food, something that's tied to a bodily appetite, a habit that becomes deeply entrenched there, uh, again, can feel almost impossible to, to break it. When we feel that, again, it's uh, satisfying all these different needs for us. The foundation of my passion is repeated habit, insensibility of soul and forgetfulness of death. And so, the repeated habit allows what is sinful to become uh, something that is deeply ingrained. It allows it to become a, a, a passion. And this is exactly what passion, a passion is, a, a sin that has become habitual in us. And so the more that we over, overeat and turn to food as our consolation, the more deeply rooted it becomes. Insensibility of soul. So our inattentiveness to how this is affecting us on an emotional and spiritual level and losing our concern for that, we can become insensible, as it were, uh, to the effects that it has upon us. And so uncaring, we can lose our desire for the spiritual life and lose our rigor in this regard. And once that discipline is lost, it's very hard to gain. Uh, and that's an important thing to remember that, you know, if when we let off of a discipline, it's not easy to reestablish, whether it's with prayer or something like fasting itself. And so to take a vacation, as it were, from the practice of fasting uh, can make it more difficult than to step back into it. And uh, I think this is what's 
part of what's beautiful, I think, in the Eastern Rites uh, is the uh, frequency of the abstaining and fasting that takes place throughout the course of the year, so that it never becomes something that is very far from our minds and practice and always sort of inviting us to embrace it with in greater depth and with greater zeal. Uh, but if we're doing it maybe once a year and minimally, uh, we're, we're going to have, again, no love for it, no desire for it, or be able to see the fruit of it at all. And this is where the insensibility of soul comes from. Why should I do this? Especially then if it makes me feel uncomfortable, if I feel terrible hunger pangs, I get headaches, I become sluggish, uh, and my prayer does not deepen because I'm feeling the physical repercussions of it, why, why bother? And forgetfulness of death. So if we are not mindful of our mortality, then again, our focus is going to become is going to shift to the things in the present moment, but not in a good way, uh, but rather to satisfying our, our needs. We begin to live for this world alone. And so food is something that gives pleasure to us, is going to be something that we think about and talk about it, talk about all the time. Look at our commercials on television. You know, every other commercial is about food. And knowing that, you know, those who are watching television are going to be in that prime position to be very suge suggestible that, uh, you know, we'll put up an image of Doritos and the next thing the person's run into the kitchen to get a snack or feel, telling themselves that they feel hungry and need, need to get something to eat. How do you seek to learn the names of my, or how do you seek to learn the names of my offspring? If I count them, they will be more in number than the sand. So isn't that interesting that, that gluttony produces offspring that is uncountable? And uh, again, this should heighten our sense of, of the need then for ordering this appetite. If opening the door to this one passion then opens us up to an uncountable number of offspring of sin, then we, we should be engaging in it with an incredible rigor. And certainly, again, in accord with our state and life, and as we talked about in, in the group on fasting, you know, in measured way as we develop that discipline, but we, are, we would give it a lot more attention than we do if we uh, take John here at his word. But learn at least the names of my firstborn and beloved children. My firstborn son is a minister of fornication. So that the satisfying of this appetite uh, weighs down the body. It, it makes us then become sluggish in prayer and more vulnerable to the suggestion uh, of the, the demon of lust. And so if we lose that, that vigilance that, and that constant readiness that, that fasting gives us, and then we are going to become vulnerable to the suggestion to fill, fulfill and satisfy another bodily appetite. And uh, so our response, part of our response to a hypersensualized culture is to, to uh, set aside our use of much of social media and to avoid you know, movies and television, all the things that are constantly placing it before us. Uh, but it also is going to be fasting. That the only way we can purify the mind, the heart, the unconscious, because if you remember, John brings into this, our, even our dreams, uh, can be purified through our attentiveness to this, uh, that we have to be engaged in this on a very deep level if we're going to seek to purify the heart. Uh, the second after fornication is hardness of heart. 
And this is mentioned up above is the kind of insensibility of soul. So we, we lose our capacity to see the, that which is beautiful and that which is godly. And, uh, but also that which is the truest part of our identity. We lose our capacity to discern what is true. If our minds and our hearts are clouded by these passions, then we are not going to be able to see the things that God desires us to see. And we'll, as we go through purity of heart, we'll see how closely it's tied to the gift of discernment. Our capacity uh, to see things as God sees them, uh, our, the sharpness of our conscience. Uh, it's only when our appetite for food has been ordered that then we can move on to the struggle for purity of heart and then deepen this gift of discernment. But if we're giving ourselves over to this passion completely, we're going to develop a kind of hardness of heart. We're not going to find those things attractive at all. In fact, hold them up even for a kind uh, of, of mockery. And uh, I think, again, you don't have to look very far uh, in discussions online uh, about uh, Christianity and spiritual practices to, to see how they are viewed within, within the world with this kind of hardness of heart. The third is sleepiness. And uh, again, this is the kind of, of, an, of both a natural repercussion of overeating. You know, we weigh ourselves down and the blood rushes to the stomach. We've talked about this you know, in regards to the, the bigger meals that we have, like at Thanksgiving, where people begin to drift off uh, when they eat in uh, overabundance. Uh, but spiritually as well, I, I think we become more vulnerable to this kind of sleepiness that we can be drawn into, especially when it comes time for prayer. When we feel the weight of a full belly, uh, we're not going to have this sense on a physical level of, of vigilance. Uh, we're, we're going to be sluggish to the point that we can be drawn into sleep while we're trying to pray. And so if this happens frequently in the practice of prayer, you know, every, I think simply because of the weakness of our flesh and fatigue, not getting enough sleep, illness, that can happen to us. We, we can drift off during our time of prayer. But one of the other reasons is, is that we eat too much and uh, we weigh ourselves down. And so we then you know, become the, the victim of uh, you know, another kind of temptation that comes to us, I think, at those times of prayer you know, to see ourselves as being just ever, oh so tired, or I just need to rest my eyes here for a minute and then we're out. Or to uh, take a too relaxed position in regards to our prayer. Uh, we've joked about this before that no one can pray in a lazy boy. Uh, so get rid of your comfy recliners when it comes time for prayer. Uh, not that one wants necessarily has to be uncomfortable, but uh, I think having a chair that allows us to uh, not get so comfortable that we're going to drift off. And often in the East, you know, there's a practice of standing while one prays. And as we've talked about in the past too, making prostrations, involving more of the self in the, the practice of prayer itself, whether it's a simple prostration or bow or all the way down to the ground, all these things can help us remain alert during those times of prayer or using a prayer rope, a chalk key or a rosary to have it within our hands to help guide us through our prayer uh, so that we stay alert and, and don't have this kind of sleepiness overcome us. Anthony writes, I get it, but cooking is an art. Food is beautiful. Nothing God made, matter or form, is evil. What we consider to be food needs reform. Our habits need reform to appreciate the art. 
but I'm a bit concerned that some of these fathers are presenting the stick too much and the carrot too little. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I can understand that. You know, they're, they're ascetics and the focus of John and so many of the fathers is on the passions. You know, they, they aren't talking about contemplation and the virtues or depth of, you know, prayer uh, or even charity so much in the beginning. And it might seem unusual to those who pick up their writings. You know, why do they always begin with this? It's because this is where the struggle uh, begins for us. We never get to that point where we taste a kind of freedom uh, that would, then would allow us, say, for example, in what you bring up, to experience cooking or food or the act of eating in the joyful way that it would be intended. Uh, we've mentioned here before that uh, uh, Jesus of Jesus making himself companions of sinners, companas, to break bread with. Uh, that there is a, a kind of communion in a common meal that develops. And this is why also we are given the Eucharist quite naturally that, but it has to be through fasting and through the Eucharist that our perception of an understanding of food and its use is altered. And so our Practicing fasting on a regular basis helps us to look at food in some of the ways that you suggest here, that it's an ordered way of looking at it, where we could see the beauty of it. But until we've gained a kind of freedom in regards to this appetite, we will never get there because of the nature of our sin is always to distort that which is good. And it's always to take that which comes in through the senses and seek to use that as a form of temptation. And so until we've gained a kind of freedom through the life of prayer, of nourishing ourselves upon, he was the bread of life and, and then through the Eucharist in particular, and then through the practice of fasting, uh, only then do we develop that kind of freedom uh, to, to be able to eat without it becoming an obstacle uh, within the spiritual life or something that potentially opens us up to all the things that John is talking about here. And so you're right. And, you know, they were writing for monks. And so I think as we read this and read it in a discerning fashion, I think this is where we have to uh, sort of flesh things out. How do we living in the world and knowing, as you said, the things that we do, that food and cooking and all these things can be quite beautiful, that it can be an art, even as you said, how are these things done uh, in freedom? And how does that even deepen the joy that we have in the act of eating itself, of sharing a common meal with others? And uh, I think we've seen over the course of time, this movement away from that joy of, of communion, of sitting around a table and uh, engaging others in a family uh, to sitting in front of the television eating or eating fast foods or not having a common meal rarely. I remember hearing a realtor say once that, you know, all these people are buying these huge homes with these magnificent kitchens, but they never use the kitchens because they're never home. They're either at work or they're out running, you know, around taking their kids to various activities, but they never use, make use of the central place of the home that is to be this place of communion. And in some sense, it should be like, um, a communion table for us, that it, it is a place where, where love and intimacy uh, is, deepens over the course of time. A great movie that sort of captures it is Babette's Feast. Have you ever, have you ever seen the film? Oh, it's magnificent. Uh, Babette is a, a French woman, and it turns out that she's a French chef. Uh, but she's forced uh, to flee the country 
and an, an opera singer that she knows finds a place for her. Uh, I, I can't remember. Ren, you're good with these kind of details if you're listening here. I can't remember what country she goes to, but she hooks up with these two sisters who whose father was a preacher and they lead this very abstemious life and they eat like boiled fish and this gruel every day and yet there's this constant the the father who's the pastor dies and so the community begins to disintegrate and uh so Babette is just so happy that she lives with them and has a place to live and they've, they've taken her in and given her this work uh, but not to spoil for everybody, but uh, who hasn't seen it. But uh, at one point towards the end of the film, she wins a lottery. Uh, and, but she, the thing that she asked of the women who had taken her in is, she, is if she could cook a true French meal for, the, for them. And all of them, you know, there are all these, you know, very, you know, staunch uh, Protestants, you know, I'm, we're not going to enjoy this. We'll eat it, but we're, you know, we're not going to allow ourselves to show any joy whatsoever. And, but she, so she cooks this, you know, like 15 course meal. And o over the course of the evening, they begin not only to enter into this experience of the meal, but it begins to transform them as a community again. You know, they're, they are able to talk with each other to overcome past resentments and to offer forgiveness for it. And so it brings a kind of joy, a life back to the community. But the origin of that is Babette's love and gratitude. She spends all the money that she had won in that lottery that would have allowed her to go back to France in order to show her gratitude for uh, these women's charity towards her. So it's a, so many Eucharistic themes within the movie, if you have a chance to watch it. So I'm glad you brought this up because, you know, as we talk about this, I think it would be easy for us to say, this is harsh and a negative, such a negative worldview, you know, can there be no joy taken in the act of eating itself. And so I'm glad you brought it up because I think what, what fasting, this kind of fasting does, and when it deepens prayer, and again, our experience of our communion with the Lord in and through the Eucharist, through this common meal that we have with each other, that binds us not only to, to him, but to each other, this transforms the way that we look at food as a whole. And uh, so, you know, the spiritual and the physical world cannot be separated. And there, there has to be this right ordering of love and desire in order for it to bear fruit. And so one could have a love of food, as Babette did, uh, that is ordered towards that which is beautiful and good and not have it become something destructive. Did you have any follow-up to that? I think there are a couple other comments. Let's see. In the Sicilian, the word for this is kind of borscht, glutton, gavone. Uh, I love that movie. It's beautiful. Uh, I don't suppose I pray as much as I should, but I have a wondrous happiness when creating, like cooking, right? Uh, right. And so... Again, you know, the, the tasting of that freedom uh, from the appetites to experience them in the way that God has created them should allow us then to be able to enter into them with a greater joy. And the same is true in terms of our capacity to love, that which we'll move on to when uh, we, we look at purity of heart and the struggle with lustfulness, that very few have tasted the, the beauty or the joy of chaste love and the freedom that gives and giving ourselves in love and receiving love from others without objectifying the self or the other. Very few have tasted that, even in the context, perhaps, of marriage. Uh, simply because there hasn't been this spiritual 
life that's been embraced that have allowed these rea natural realities for us to be transformed by the grace of God. Br Bridget McGinley writes, Father, this is a little off topic. Was St. John Cassian uh, a priest? Um, I know that he was ordained a deacon. Uh, I'm not sure if he was ordained to the priesthood, although I think it's true. Also, do you, are you talking about Cassian or Climacus here, to just to clarify? Also, do you know of any books which talk about devotion to St. Mary Magdalene? I recently returned from France, Spain, where I learned St. John founded a monastery adjacent to her cave. The, uh, Cassian protected her cave for hundreds of years and the Dominicans have had it since about 1200s, right? Cassian uh, lived among the Desert Fathers for something up to a dozen years that he extended his stay there. He was given permission with Germanus to go there uh, to learn sort of this ideal practice of the monastic life and then comes back to France and establishes monasteries. So he brings the, the, the wisdom of the Eastern monastic life and spirituality to the Western monastic life. And the, from this then, the Eastern wisdom, and you know this, this is why I say this is part of our patrimony. It comes into all the Western monasticism as well. Benedict has Cassian's writings as essential reading mandatory reading for his monks within the role. And uh, because it communicates to, to monks in the West, uh, this, this wisdom that we find in, in Climacus and Cassian. Uh, I, I do think, I know that he was ordained deacon. I'd have to go back and check about the priesthood though. Uh, your question about devotion to Mary Magdalene, I know about uh, the tie to France, I'd, I'd have to do a little research for you to find out more information on that. Wayne writes, well, we now have foods that create little preparation. And in turn, we have lost the art form of preparation. Also, we don't have the sense of where our food comes from. Uh, that's right. You know, I think in, in the past too, growing up, my experience uh, of meals and watching how they were prepared was much different. Uh, as you said here, knowing where foods come from, uh, you know, of seeing family make their own bread and can their own food, have gardens, uh, you know, that they were very much involved in this process that was the work of their own hands. And so I think it made them appreciate food in a different way as they sort of made it and it was uh, with their own hands and as it was a part of their own life and um, this sitting down at the meal was again a much greater event too I think with some families becoming smaller and uh, also more scattered uh, because of how people sort of move for jobs now more the, the extended family is not as tightly knit as it, as it once was. So this sense of communion, of cooking a meal together uh, uh, has fallen by the wayside. And now people are looking for, you know, easier and easier ways of preparing a meal. And I think in some ways, that, that's certainly not a healthy thing because it leads, it can lead us to objectify it in such a sense that we're, we're just taking it and using it, but not really thinking about what we are doing. That the, the very act of eating, especially in light of the Eucharist now, uh, should be something that is a contemplative act for us. And religious in religious communities, you'll find this very strong connection between the chapel and the refectory that there will often be this movement from the chapel and prayer in silence and prayer to the refectory for the, for the meal. And there will be a reading of the gospel and a reading from the life of the saints that will take place, a more formal kind of prayer and, and blessing will, will be given. Uh, when a guest is comes, sometimes the guest hands will be washed by the prior of a monastery 
And so there is this ritual that surrounds the, the, the meal itself for a religious community that I think also helps to form and shape the way that they approach eating in general. And uh, I think when we, the more that we lose that, then I, I think there's nothing that's shaping the way that we, we look at food. And the more that people have moved away again from uh, an, an incarnational view of, of, of reality, of God entering into his creation, taking our flesh upon himself and how that transforms our experience of reality as, as a whole and what it is to be a human being. The more that people have moved away from that and from a Eucharistic-centered spirituality, I think our we have a tendency then to focus upon food uh, uh, as we focus upon so many things in a consumerist kind of fashion as quickly and as effortlessly as, as possible. Okay, Sister Barbara, in Eastern Monsters, the refractory walls are covered with iconography. That's right. And uh, and a few monathos, it's sort of interesting. I caught this one photo online of something almost like the ladder uh, of, of divine ascent on the la of the refractory wall. And uh, talk about a reminder uh, as you're eating your meal to be gazing uh, upon that image. Uh, and in one of the uh, retreat houses on Athos too, they have this image of the secret eater the monk who is, you know, going to the refectory and and taking food back to his room and eating privately, uh, secretly while maintaining the illusion of the fast, and then you know the it's discovered and uh, uh, a demon manifests himself before all the monks of the community. So it's based upon a real event uh, too. So there are all these reminders. Uh, I think to to monks and to nuns uh, about how the refractory and how eating is to be seen. And so one of the things I think I've encouraged families to do is to try to capture that in some measure, the common meal at home, but also to have something that shapes it. It doesn't have to be obviously as intense as what we would find in a monastery, but to have, to have the scriptures of the day read at the beginning of, of the meal, uh, or to have something follow the meal, a reading from a text that the family would discuss in some small measure, all that can give a different shape to the experience of eating. Father, this, let's uh, see. St. Mary Magdalene by Father Davidson is a good book. Thank you, Vicki. Father Sean Davidson, St. Mary Magdalene, prophetess of Eucharistic love. Okay. So let's make our way through this last little section of the text. But learn at least the names of my firstborn beloved children. My firstborn is the minister of fornication. The second after him is hardness of heart and then sleepiness. From me pursue, uh, proceed a sea of bad thoughts, waves of filth, depths of unknown and unnamed impurities. And so again, there's a kind of vulnerability here that out of the, out of the depths, uh, of even the unconscious, unconscious uh, waves of thoughts and can come upon us that we lose, can lose that kind of prayerfulness, that vigilance, and things can get, begin to emerge. Or again, we uh, can be overcome by temptations that are placed before us. Uh, my daughters are laziness, talkativeness, familiarity, and speech jesting, facetiousness, contradiction, a stiff neck, obstinacy, disobedience, insensibility, captivity, conceit, audacity, love of adornment, after which follows impure prayer, wandering of thoughts, and often unexpected and sudden misfortunes with which is closely bound despair, the most evil of my daughters. And so, 
you know, unchecked, this appetite then leads to a kind of uh, uh, unexamined use of the gift of speech and leads us to be talking about things that one would not want to talk about or jesting in an inappropriate way, uh, laziness. Uh, so again, a lot of these things are tied certainly to the monastic life, but I, I think can afflict us as well. A kind of gossipy attitude, chatting, you know, this uh, uh, filling of the belly and excess leads to excess in other areas as well, including speech. The remembrance of falls resists me, but does not conquer me. So calling to mind uh, our poverty and the poverty of our sin and past falls is, is a way to begin to get a, a check on our overeating, but not enough, he says, to overcome it. The thought of death is always hostile to me, but there's nothing within men that destroys me completely. So the remembrance of our mortality can make us less focused upon constantly feeding our bellies. But what John is warning us about is that because it is such a part of us, that there's no way for us to destroy it completely. We have to eat and we have to nourish ourselves. And so there is going to be this vulnerability, uh, especially outside of the grace of God and outside of a disciplined prayer life that is, 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 is going to emerge again and again. The thought, I'm sorry, um, he who has received the comforter prays to him against me. And the comforter, when appealed to, does not allow me to act passionately, but those who have not tasted his gift inevitably seek their pleasure in my sweetness. So this is sort of what I was talking about before, uh, but even in, in greater measure, that when one has tasted the sweetness of the spirit and of life in Christ and tasted the sweetness of that freedom from the passions, then they begin to call upon the spirit more and more. And then this is what gives them the greatest amount of strength in this struggle. Uh, but so, and it would keep it from acting passionately, John says. So if you're constantly calling out for the aid of God's grace, then this passion is not going to take root within you, even though it's always going to seek to afflict you while you're in this world. Uh, but those who have never tasted it are, are not going to have this within their mind to be calling out to the spirit for aid in that spiritual battle. So if we're in the habit of, of mind that food, our intake of food is not really important and not important for the spiritual life. Uh, so again, you know, there's something different from uh, eating for health and being conscious of health and even fasting for health and then but fast as opposed to fasting for the spiritual reasons here that uh, there has to be this connection that is made within the mind and the heart that we're engaged in this spiritual warfare again we're in a constant state of receptivity through all of our senses this is the most fundamental of them, our need for food. And so the battle begins here. So it's not about dieting. It's not about being in good shape or good health on a physical level. It's, it's tied to the fullness of who we are as human beings and our spirit, and most importantly, our spiritual life. This is why we would fast. The victory over this vice is a courageous one. He who is able, let him hasten to dispassion and to the highest degree of chastity. So there has to be purge in this particular battle that it's not an easy one, simply because it's tied to something so basic and so simple as eating that we cannot underestimate the, the resolve that is needed and the discipline and the reliance upon God's grace. And uh, 
But once we have entered into this, uh, it allows us to rush towards what he describes as dispassion, freedom from the grip of the passions and the other areas of our life, and then to also the highest degree of chastity, which is a rightly ordered love. But if we are to able to order our appetite or our love for food, then this can affect our, our ability then to pursue what is even of greater importance, to be able to rightly order our love for all things. So chastity isn't simply about sexual purity. It's more about rightly ordered love, a love that is directed toward God, that our desire for him and a desire for what he alone can satisfy then shapes all of our other desires and this is the first step in moving into that direction by gaining this control over this ba basic appetite and our desire for food. Any final comments before moving on to the next section? Okay. So step number 15 on incorruptible purity and chastity to which the corruptible attained by toil and sweat. So it's an interesting title, isn't it? Incorruptible purity and chastity. That what is set before us is a kind of invincible chastity, one that is not influenced by temptation or disordered love or the objectification of others or things. Uh, and so what is held before us is, you know, th this extraordinary capacity uh, for freedom, but also the experience of love. We have heard from that raving mistress gluttony, who has just spoken that her offspring is war against bodily chastity. And this is not surprising, since our ancient forefather Adam teaches us this too. For if he had not been overcome by his stomach, he would not have known what a wife was. Sorry, ladies, about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is why those who keep the first commandment do not fall into the second transgression, and they continue to be children of Adam without knowing what Adam was. But they are made a little lower than the angels in being subject to death. And this is to prevent evil from becoming immortal as he who is called the theologian says. So, you know, this idea of eating, you know, appealing to a particular appetite, uh, again, it's interesting, it's through food, you know, that it becomes and is redeemed for us in and through Christ to become a source of communion, but initially it's used as a means to break that communion with God, but also to break it with each other. And what's held out is knowledge, knowledge of good and evil, and but knowing in terms of experience, experience. So not just knowing in this notional way, but in and through experience. So you will know good and evil for yourself. You will experience, you will taste evil for yourself. And they succumb to the, the, the temptation that something was to be gained there, that they were going to be put on an equal level with God himself. But what happens is that they are drawn into the experience of evil, allowed to taste the disorder of it for themselves. And so they lose the capacity to order their passions. They begin to experience shame. They cannot look at each other now uh, with freedom. And so they have to cover each other uh, because cover themselves because they begin to, to look at each other in a disordered or lustful way. And then they, they seek to, their communion with God is broken so deeply that they seek to hide themselves from him. And, uh, and so, you know, John is drawing us back to this, not that we would overly interpret it, but that we would understand that our path back uh, to virtue often means backtracking uh, the, through the path that we've taken to it. So if it is gluttony, if it is this desire to consume for ourselves, 
something uh, that is the prerogative of God to take it for ourselves rather than to receive it from his hand uh, as gift uh, is what brings us into disorder. And so our path back is to fast, to order uh, that appetite and to bring order to that passion and to direct our desire to its appropriate end. And again, we go back to the gospel to look at how Jesus presents fasting then to his disciples. Uh, they don't fast when they have the bridegroom with them. They feast then, uh, but it's when he's taken away that they will fast. Their, their fasting then becomes an expression of their desire, their hunger for what he alone can provide. And so again, it's through fasting, it's through the Eucharist, through our desire for he who is the bread of life that brings order and healing uh, to where there was disorder and woundedness that had come into the world through this original sin or through this fall. Purity means that we put on the angelic nature Purity is the longed-for house of Christ and the earthly heaven of the heart. Purity is a supernatural denial of nature, which means that a mortal and corruptible body is uh, reviling the, uh, the celestial spirits in a truly marvelous way. So we, we begin to through the practice of this discipline to order the appetites in such a way that we are configured uh, in our loving and giving ourselves to, uh, we're configured in this sense to the angels. Not that we don't have our bodily needs or desires, but they're not what, that what guide and direct and shape our view of the world of others and our relationship with God. Uh, so by grace, we are elevated even to something that's higher than that, uh, to a participation in the, the life of the most holy trinity. And oftentimes within the life of certain saints, you, you'll hear these stories where some of them uh, subsist for a period of time only on the Holy Eucharist. And, you know, this isn't something that is given to many or... Uh, that we are called to, to attempt. But uh, I think these, this kind of miraculous uh, ability to be sustained upon the Holy Eucharist speaks to us, again, of where our true life and fulfillment comes from. And that is in and through Christ. And to, to remind us not to you know, have this downward focus where we're seeking for fullness, meaning, identity in the things of this world, but to keep our eyes fixed upon Christ who alone can give that to us. But we already see here purity as uh, our understanding of it broadening out, that it's not simply tied to sexual desire that it is really about our capacity, to, again, to love and give ourselves in love. And, uh, and so this is why you will find so many of the fathers say that the immediate goal of the spiritual life is purity of heart. That this is where we want to keep our focus. Because if it's really about ordering our love rightly toward God, and towards the ends that God desires for us, then that's going to affect everything about our life. And so purity of heart becomes the door then to all the other virtues. And this is why it's so important for us not to try to, to, to leapfrog over the necessity of fasting and dealing with gluttony or of ordering our appetites in regards to sensuality, uh, because it's, it's really on a deeper level about uh, 
returning to our capacity to love in the way that God intended. That we might see things as they, they truly are. And so he writes, he who is pure, he is pure who expels love with love and who has extinguished the material fire by immaterial fire. So it's our desire for God that reshapes and purifies all of our earthly desires. So the shift of our focus and our love to him does not nullify what it is to be a human being, but it purifies all that which has been affected by our sins, by our living in communion with him, that our capacity to engage the world around us and to engage others and giving our, ourselves in love and receiving that love uh, is uh, comes to experience, we, it's there that we begin to experience a kind of deep healing. And, you know, sadly, this is never spoken about. You know, again, when I think back to my formation in, in seminary and thinking about the things that are really uh, essential to day-to-day -day guidance, uh, whether it's in the confessional or spiritual direction, what really impacts people's life on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, we aren't given uh, an insight into the praxis that surrounds that. And so what kind of counsel is being given uh, other than something that is basic or is rooted in sort of modern psychology that might have some value or fruit to it, but it's, it's not going to be something that is shaped and directed by the grace of God when you remove God from the equation. So if we move from being spiritual men and women to psychological man and woman or therapeutic man and woman, then we aren't addressing the healing of soul that needs to take place. You would never go to a modern psychotherapist and have them say, you know, I really think in order to overcome masturbation or, or in order to uh, deal with your sexual appetites, you should begin to fast on a regular basis or pray. It's not part of their anthropology and their psychology of how the mind works or, or what it is to be a human being. It's, it's not, again, it's not that there is no fruit or no wisdom there, but if you cut off a, a whole element of what it is to be a human being, you're going to have a distorted sense of who we are, but also what, what can bring healing. And so the, the healing that we are offered and what is put forward to us by the fathers is almost limitless, is, is what we're being told here. And the title tells us an incorruptible purity and chastity that by the grace of God, we, we can come to a point of invincible joy, of peace, of purity of heart that we can live in the love of God and have that have an impact upon every aspect of our day-to-day -day life, our work, our encounter with others, and then even something like eating. And I, I think too often our spiritual life uh, is presented as, you know, being something that's negative of, you know, of setting aside joy, uh, of, of setting aside things that bring pleasure. And that's the, you know, the end of it, you know, of, uh, of sort of having this negative anthropology. I think that's how Christian spirituality is put. But the reason that it's understood in that way is that we've, we failed, I think, to glean the wisdom from the fathers that tell us what is being held out to us here is the perfection of love, the, the perfection of freedom, but the capacity to be a human being in the way that God has made us, to love and to live our life in the way that God intended. 
that it offers the greatest amount of joy. This, this is how we need to be communicating the spiritual life, even as we are talking about the specific disciplines and the struggle with the passions. And that's why I was glad that Anthony brought up uh, the issue about cooking and eating as a whole, uh, because it broadens out, again, our perspective and where it needs to be and how we need to be communicating this. Ashley writes, it's probably obvious, but this section makes me think of the Beatitudes. Aristotle had a maxim that said, as a person is, so does he see. And I think that once we are granted the grace necessary to slowly make our hearts undivided in love, then too, do we become pure of heart and our vices are chipped away to make room for virtue so that we might at the end of our lives see God face to face. Blessed are the pure of heart, they shall see God. Wow, that's beautiful. Did you steal that from a book? That's too perfectly written. Uh, no, really well said. Uh, and I think you're right on mark here. As a person is, so does he see that the more that we enter into this life, the more that we embrace this vision of what it is to be a human being uh, that uh, touched by the grace of God, allows us to see things as they are in reality, no longer through, through the distorted lens of our sin. And ultimately, this brings us to the goal of purity of heart, which is to see God, to see God face to face. So beautifully put. And this will become clear as we go through it. You know, again, don't let the, the language, the challenging language put you off to it. Because I think, uh, again, the, the fruit uh, that will emerge from this will uh, be well worth it. The so image of what it is to, to have freedom, to love, uh, will become much clearer. Okay. Any other final comments before we wrap things up for the evening? So when we close, as always, there then with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.